Hello everybody, welcome down to this history. I'm just on an airfield now waiting for my Wildcat helicopter. It's the birthday, the 80th birthday of 815 Naval Air Squadron, a wonderful squadron of the Royal Navy's fleet air arm who fought in the skies above Dunkirk, in the Channel, and then in the Mediterranean where they took place in the famous raid on the Italian fleet at Taranto during Operation Judgment, one of the most impressive and successful naval air attacks of all time, and an, an attack so successful, in fact, that it was closely studied by the Japanese and helped shape their thinking around an attack on Pearl Harbor. Ever since then, it's been at the forefront of the Fleet Air Arms activities, and I am doing a bit of filming, doing a bit of recording for their birthday, so it's good fun. I'll be whizzing around in the skies. This podcast has absolutely nothing to do with 815 Naval Air Squadron. This podcast is an interview with a brilliant historian. She's Dr. Nicole Wilson. She's the Leverhulme Trust Early Career Research Fellow at the University of Central Lancaster's Institute for Black Atlantic Research. She's just made a fantastic discovery in the archives, which you will hear all about. And she she works in the field of the Haitian rebellion, the Haitian revolt, the Haitian independence struggle, which is the, the most successful example of enslaved people rising up and throwing off the shackles of their oppressors and setting up an independent country in modern history. In fact, I can think of a few others. So it's one of the great stories. It's embarrassing we haven't covered it before now on the podcast. And Dr. Nicole Wilson is the person to do just that. Before I leave you, though, you can go on to History Hit TV. You can use the code POD3, P-O-D-3. You can get the world's best digital history channel. It's like Netflix, but for history. All sorts of documentaries go out there soon, particularly an interesting project involving Second World War archaeology. I think you're going to want to, you want to see. It's a exclusive to History Hit TV. It would be a great shame for you to miss that. So please go to History Hit TV. Use the code POD3, P-O-D-3. You get one month for free. Then you get three months, just one pound, euro or dollar for each of those first three months. Uh, it's a, I mean, that's cheap. In the meantime, here's Dr. Nicole Wilson. Enjoy. Dr. Nicole Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to come to your extraordinary discovery in a minute, but I want to get the background of the of the Haitian Revolution first. Uh, it really is one of the most remarkable stories in in human history of the last three hundred years. Well, just just explain briefly what what was the situation in Haiti before the revolution, and then give me a sense of just how unique this event was. Sure. Well, I mean, as you rightly point out, this is one of the most unique and important events in human history. The Haitian Revolution broke out on the French colony of Saint-Domingue. So as a colony was a, a slave colony, and for centuries there had been slave unrest in the colony. And so when this revolution broke out, it wasn't really a great surprise to the colonial population. In fact, the colonial population were, were quite arrogant about it because they thought, oh, well, this is just another another slave insurgency. And these things happened all the time. So they just thought, well, these people just need to let off some steam and then things will go back to normal and will punish the people who are the ringleaders of this insurgency. And by punish, I mean put to death, because this is often what happened when insurgencies broke out in colonial places. So this isn't what happened, though. What happened was in 1791, there was a, a really big slave uprising. 
And in fact, there were there were lots of uprisings preceding this, but this was the the real big one. And it extended into a huge revolutionary conflict, which eventually ended in 1804, when the enslaved rebels declared their independence. And a new nation was forged off the back of this, which was called Haiti. And this name was taken from the native Taino Arawak name for the island, Aiti, which means mountainous land. So this was a huge development in world history. So because this is the, is this, this is the, well, it's the, is it the first and only time that enslaved population has successfully rebelled against their former, you know, colonial uh, authorities and, and it's been, and it's, you know, sustained, it's, it's survived. Yeah, yeah. So this was the first and only successful slave revolution in history. So as you can imagine, throughout the colonial world, there were many slave insurgencies, but most of these were put down. Uh, Some of them ended in concessions for enslaved people, but none of them ended in the formation of an independent black state, which effectively was the result of the Haitian Revolution. And we've got to remember, these slaves had been denied access to education, ability to communicate amongst themselves, arms. It is, it is astonishing. Basically, what were the reasons for this extraordinary success? Well, there were a number of different reasons. And in fact, you know, I've, I've really simplified what was a very complex and multi-layered history. And there were lots of kind of component parts and lots of competing factions that were engaged in this conflict. So I've said that the Haitian Revolution emerged out of a slave uprising, which is ultimately true. But it also emerged out of racial tensions in the colony more generally. So in addition to the slave uprising, you also had disunity among the uh, populations of colour in the colony. So you had a a free population of colour within the colony who were attempting over the last decades of the 18th century to acquire more what we would call civil rights, I guess. So they were striving to achieve recognition of equal status under the law, parliamentary representation, voting, marriage, property rights, and that kind of thing. And so you know, you, you had these people trying to to establish their own freedom and independence. And so there was there was a long movement for civil rights in Saint-Domingue among this interest group. And it was really when the the slave revolution took off that the population of colour saw an opportunity to kind of join forces with this group of slave rebels and and fight for a bigger cause because it was never really their cause to to achieve freedom for the enslaved populace because many of these people of colour actually had slaves of their own. But as you can see it was it was a very kind of complex and, and multi-layered conflict. And so you had elite free coloured people on on the one hand and formerly enslaved guerrilla troops on the other side fighting for for very different kind of interests but they united forces and eventually began fighting towards the same goal. 
there are some extraordinary figures that emerge from the formerly in, enslaved people of of Haiti. And is it is it me or do women play an outsized role in in the in the historiography of this rebellion? Well, certainly women seem to to play an outside role in the written history of the Haitian Revolution. And as yet, there's been no book length study of women in the Haitian Revolution, which is quite extraordinary. But in fact, it's it's not surprising because the archive of slavery, the colonial archive, it really occludes people of colour in general, but women in particular, because uh, women were the group who had even less opportunities to acquire education. And so very, very few women of colour, very, very few enslaved women within colonial societies were literate women. And so not many of them leave behind written histories. And so the the histories that we have are the histories of these big men, or what Haitian historians might call Guoneg. So we have key figures like Toussaint Louverture, for example. And he's probably one of the most famous and probably one of the characters that people might be most familiar with from the, the written history of the Haitian Revolution. And he was actually part of the, the slave uprising of 1791. But he was quite unique because although he was part of this slave uprising, he wasn't actually enslaved when the revolution broke out. He was a free man. Um, and it's thought that he actually had some property and had some slaves of his own. But he was nevertheless part of this guerrilla maroon enslaved movement that took off in 1791. And he was one of the only key players from that initial uprising that really rose to prominence throughout the course of the entire revolution. So, you know, this revolution has a 13-year history and he's the one that really becomes the key player throughout the entire revolution. And he was he was incredibly intelligent. We don't know quite how literate he was. He was certainly a very well-read man, but we don't know whether he could write very well because a lot of his written documents are transcribed by secretaries. But nevertheless, he was a, a very keen strategist, both in, in political and military terms. And he really knew how to play off different powers against one another because Saint-Domingue was actually the, the most lucrative colony in the Atlantic world. And so when this huge revolution broke out, all of the other world players saw this great opportunity. They thought, wow, this is this is a great opportunity to get a piece of the pie. And so you had players like like Britain and Spain and later America trying to, to get in on a piece of the action. And Louverture, in turn, saw this as an opportunity. So he allied himself with the Spanish in the fight against the French colonial authorities. And this was a really smart move because it really put the French on the back foot. And they were kind of spurred to take action. And so in 1793, the civil commissioner in Saint-Domingue made this really bold proclamation to effectively emancipate all slaves 
in the northern province of the colony. And later in 1794, France uh, ratified this and extended a general emancipation across all of its colonies. And this was monumental because this hadn't been done by any Atlantic world power. This was really significant. And it's this point that Toussaint and some of his key officers, who included people like Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Henri Christophe and his nephew Moise, they came back to fight for the French and they defended the French territories. And Toussaint was made head of the army and he was given quite considerable power at this point by the French. And, and towards the end of the 18th century, he was, he was effectively in charge of, of the whole colony. So meanwhile, you have this interest group of free people of colour that I was talking about early, earlier on. And this was headed up by people like Alexandre Petion and André Rigo. And they, they really didn't get along with Toussaint and his group of officers. And so there was there was a lot of infighting between them and, and they kind of broke away from them after joining forces with them. So, you know, there, there were there was a lot of disunity between these groups. And, and Toussaint is really the, the key figure that we remember in history. And part of the reason for that is that Toussaint was captured before the end of the revolution. So all the while that, that these things are going on, we have big shifts going on in the French metropole. So, you know, we've had the revolution in France. You've had the, the execution of Louis XVI and the reign of terror has passed. And by 1799, the French Republic had fallen. So Napoleon Bonaparte was on the ascendancy. But Napoleon really didn't like Toussaint. And he wanted to reinstate slavery in the French colonies. And so he sent a French expeditionary force to do just that, to go back to Saint-Domingue and to recapture, to reconquer the island and to imprison Toussaint Louverture. And so his leading general, General Leclerc, who was his brother-in-law, he captured Toussaint Louverture and, and Toussaint was taken back to France where he very tragically died in a French prison in the Jura Mountains. And this is a real turning point in the revolutionary saga. So this is 1803. This is very nearly the end of the revolution. And so Toussaint dies and he becomes this, this really tragic figure that captivates the Western imagination and really concretizes and crystallizes the cruelty of Atlantic world slavery. And so it's for this reason that we remember him, because he's not just a person who's who's left a written legacy in Haitian history, but because he he captivated the white Western imagination and he plays such a prominent part in our own histories. That that was a tour de force. Thank you for trying to take me through the whole of that very complicated slave rebellion and successful independence campaign. But tell me about the remarkable discovery that you made more recently. Okay, so a few months ago, I discovered the will of Marie-Louise Christophe, who was the wife of Henri Christophe and later became king of the kingdom of Haiti. Um, so, you know, just very briefly, 
After independence was declared in Haiti, Jean-Jacques Dessalines became the ruler of an independent Haiti, but he was executed in 1806 by rival groups. And um, the two key players then were Christophe and Petion. And Christophe had a lot of sway among the former slaves and Petion was was really kind of key among that free coloured elite group. And, and they couldn't agree as to what they were going to do. So they split and, and Petion became ruler of the Southern Republic of Haiti and Christophe became the ruler of the northern part of Haiti, the state of Haiti. And so from 1807 to 1811, he ruled as president of the state of Haiti. But in 1811, he, he sent shockwaves across the world because he anointed himself king. And at that point, his wife became queen. And, you know, this had all of the trappings of a conventional monarchy. He had dukes and barons and knights. It was really quite an elaborate uh, setup for a monarchy. And it was really impressive. People across the Western world were really taken aback by this kingdom that he established. So as you can imagine, on discovering this will, I was really excited because we we know very little about the life of Marie-Louise Christophe, even though she outlived her husband by 30 years and in fact died in Europe. So it was a really, really exciting discovery for me because it offers loads of really lovely, juicy tidbits about her life. And, and we can begin piecing together fragments of that story again. And subsequent to discovering and transcribing this will, because I've only very recently had the time to go through it and transcribe it. It's a five-page document, and it's in the most hideous notarial scrawl. I've actually been able to conclusively locate her, her London address in 1824. So that was even more exciting. Where did she live in London? She lived at 30 Weymouth Street in Marlebone. Oh, very nice address. Yes, a very, very nice address indeed. And I've actually visited it recently and it was, it was a lovely townhouse. So where, where was this will? Where did you discover it? It's so exciting. Well, I, I was just doing an online search of various things and looking in the National Archive catalogue and it popped up. So I, I did a search for her surname, Christophe, and also her, uh, her maiden name, Quoi David, and she's named as Quoi David in her will. So, so yeah, it was that simple, but it seems that there haven't been that many people looking for this kind of thing. And, and doing this kind of extensive study. And so no real fanfare has been made about this and there's no mention of it in, in any kind of written histories. What are the kind of key points for a historian from the will that have really helped to enhance our, our knowledge of, of her or, or the period in which she lived? It really gives us a, a rich understanding of uh, her faith. So she was a devout Catholic and in her will, she makes considerable bequests to the church and to the Kapukin nunnery, um, where she spent a lot of her, her time when she was ill and convalescing. It also tells us that she, she had prevailing family ties in Haiti. 
um, and also probably dispersed throughout Europe. So there are a number of family members who are named in this will. And so it allows us to piece together uh, not only her kind of life experience, but her genealogy. Um, and that's that's really great. I've had lots of contact from genealogists and heritage specialists who are really keen to know what's in this document. And, you know, that that can be really helpful in in helping us to to trace any descendants as well. Um, so there's been been that part of it. But it also really gives us kind of deep personal insights because this is a will and unlike any other kind of histories written about people this is something that was dictated so I've never really looked at wills in any depth before but I learned a whole new language on going through this thing one of the new words that I learned was nuncupative so nuncupative means that it's spoken and so you know this is testament to the fact that she spoke these words, that these were her words written down for her. And so, you know, you're really gaining a sense of her voice, her personal lived experience. And one of the things that comes through from that is that she she actually never embraced Europe as her home. And she was forced to flee the, the kingdom of Haiti in 1821 um, after her husband died by suicide and rebel forces executed her two sons because they were the the surviving heirs. But her and her two daughters managed to escape this fate. And after a few months, that was when they escaped to England. And they lived in England for a few years before then doing what looks like the Grand Tour in Europe. And they eventually settled in Pisa. So she spent a long time 30 years in Europe, but she never embraced it as her home. And she never relinquished Haiti as her home in her imagination. So that's something that really comes through from the will. And that that's something that's, that's priceless for a historian. Um, do we know, I mean, there are amazing stories of women fighting alongside men in the revolution. I think just some of the Again, to come back to it, but some of the stories I've always found most compelling, really, of anything I've ever studied, some of these some of these accounts. Do we know what part she played during the revolution itself? Well, there's very little information about that. And there's there's nothing that I can find in the will that that tells us about her life during the revolution. But there are some accounts, and one account that I've found in the British press, actually, of somebody who visited the royal court of King Henri that said that that during the revolution, she experienced extreme privation, uh, that she carried her children on her back, that she went through periods of starvation, eating only wild berries and fruit and things like that. So, you know, only these little tiny snippets, but that in itself is is very rich and compelling because we know that she was with Christophe throughout the course of the revolution and that she bore his children. So, you know, this must have been an incredibly difficult experience for women who accompanied their husbands and partners, and lovers on the battlefront, who probably served a multitude of roles, acting as nurses and caregivers. And you know, although we don't have an awful lot of of written information, we know that there were women who who participated uh, militarily in this conflict as well. 
So there was one famous figure named Sanité Belair, and she was the wife of General Charles Belair. And she was a very famous revolutionary soldier. And she was she was executed by the French, but only after she was forced to watch her husband be executed in front of her. And, you know, that is that is a really emotional and um, and harrowing story, I think. Um, we think that she, the husband uh, surrendered himself, didn't he? Because he couldn't bear to be separated from her. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just the best. I love the story of those two. Yeah. I cannot believe it's not a film. It's ridiculous. I know, what's going I know. On. You well, should write a screenplay. <laughs> at the moment, there is no film of the Haitian Revolution. And, and this is really frustrating for uh, scholars of Haiti like me. But I, I think that people have been trying to get films made for years. But it's one of these things that... I think is is a little bit unsafe for Hollywood because it involves this this theme of black retribution that that people don't necessarily like to engage with. Well, that's a whole that's a whole another podcast institutional racism in in entertainment yeah. and everything. But um, <laughs> listen, I, the how can people uh, follow you and 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 access the the research you've done on this with this wonderful discovery? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm hoping to set up a website to make the transcription uh, freely accessible, open access uh, very, very soon. So that should be available to people. And I'll have a link to it on my my Twitter page so people can find me on Twitter. I'm at Nicole Wilson. Wilson with two L's is crucial to remember. And I also have a home at the Institute for Black Atlantic Research at the University of Central Lancashire. So you can find me on those pages as well. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Nicole Wilson with two L's. Thank you for sparing the time to come on the podcast. It was um, it's, it's one of the great subjects, so thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. I think we'll have the history on our shoulders. All the history of our country, the history of our country.